Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Psalm, uh, in Psalm 46, right? God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. Uh, If you're new here, we're in a sermon series called Seven Steps to Spiritual Growth. And the caveat that I've been giving over and over again is that um, growing spiritually, it isn't a formula. So it's not like you can do these seven things and automatically become a super holy person. But there are some basic things that we all have to do if we want to grow spiritually. So the first step we talked about was confession. You have to confess your sins. The second step was consider others better than yourself. So in all your relationships, you constantly want to be putting yourself below the people you're relating to and considering yourself a servant of them. So you're living in the flow of love and always trying to make your life about giving love to other people. So that's the second step. And today we're going to explore a practice that I think is an essential practice that all Christians need to engage in. And the purpose of this practice is to help us in times of trouble. When we find ourselves in a time of trouble, this is the sort of practice that will keep us safe in a time of trouble. So a few stories from the news uh, I'm aware of, of people being in times of trouble. So the first is going to be super relatable. Um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. You guys have been following the story of the royals. Um, Well, within the last couple weeks, they've essentially decided to leave the royal family. And while none of us have had the experience of being a royal, maybe we've had the experience of wanting to leave our families, run away from our families, and kind of have that cut off from our families. And so clearly what's happened for them, I mean, it's not hard, I don't really know, because I haven't followed the story that closely, but it's not hard to imagine, you know, what it's like for, for Prince Harry growing up in the shadow of his older brother who gets married first, who has all these kids first, who is first in line to the throne or whatever in line to the throne, but certainly ahead of him. And then he kind of can deal with it, but then once he gets married, it makes it a little bit more complicated, and then he has a kid, and that seems to be the breaking point for them. And now something has happened that's caused a lot of emotional distress in their family, and the solution is, that's it, we're done, we're leaving. And he's moving on from the royal family. Maybe another example of someone experiencing trouble in society that's a little bit on the other end of the spectrum uh, I was watching SportsCenter the other day, and um, apparently KU, Kansas University or University of Kansas, was playing Kansas State University, which, as you can imagine, is a pretty big rivalry. 
and a huge fight broke out at the end of the game. So bad that there was one player who had taken like a stool or a chair above his head and it looked like, I don't know if he actually did, but it looked like he was going to throw it at a person and there was punches thrown and, and people have gotten suspensions, multi-game suspensions because of it. But this is the sort of experience where you're, they're like in-state rivals and KU was, um, was beating Kansas State pretty badly and at the end of the game, you know, tempers flared and then it came out and there was a brawl. And, and, and it's understandable. I mean, if you and I can probably relate to this. If you think about someone in your life who has been a rival, if you've been on this public stage where your rival has just handily beaten you, clearly better than you, that feels like pretty intense trouble and it can bring up a whole bunch of negative emotions, trigger significant emotional distress. For us, it may not be on a national stage, a basketball court, or on a national stage because we're part of a royal family, but we've all had these experiences where something has happened, some difficult circumstance or difficult relationship that has triggered emotional distress for us. Coworker, boss does something that makes you feel rage. Spouse makes a passing comment that touches this deep, deep wound. Parent ignores you, calls up decades of memories of neglect, and you want to lash out, or maybe a patient or a client says something super annoying, and you're just like, ah, oh, and you just want to walk out of the room. We've all had these moments, big and small, where something happens that triggers us, and we feel these intense emotions, and we find ourselves in a time of trouble and pain hurt, and a lot of emotional turmoil. What we're going to talk about today is the way that our faith is supposed to keep us safe in these times of trouble. God wants you and me to find refuge in our times of trouble so that we can thrive through these difficult situations and hard relationships. And as I think about these times of trouble, one of the things I've noticed is that um, there's, not, there's not like an objective standard for what trouble is, right? Like two people can experience the same circumstance of trouble or the same circumstances and one person might barely break a sweat, like it's not even that big of a deal, where the other person, it feels traumatic or like their life is going to be ruined. And so what this means is that trouble is um, some sort of combination between circumstances or relationships or something going on in our life and then what happens inside of us. And what happens inside of us is related to what is happening out here, but also what has happened in our past, who we're in relationship with now, what we believe in, what we hold to be valuable, what we want. So trouble is really defined by circumstances and then the emotional pain or turmoil that it creates in us. And it's going to be different for each person. And what our psalmist is describing today is that you and I can face the most difficult of circumstances in our life, but if we know how to take refuge in God, we will feel safe. We will be kept safe from trouble in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And our psalmist uses the richness 
of poetic imagery to try and paint a picture for just the most terrible circumstances you can imagine. Listen in verses 2 through two and 3. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. So we're talking like natural, just absolute chaos. Mountains just falling into the ocean. He's using this rich poetic imagery. This isn't something he's literally talking about. He's saying this is when we're in trouble, it feels like the sky is falling. It feels like mountains are collapsing. It feels like the foundation beneath us is shaking like an earthquake. And then he says, this is what God, in, well, in verse 1, he says, this is what God does for us in those sorts of circumstances. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. God is our helper. The question then is, how? How does God help us? How does God help us to find refuge and feel safe when we go through that difficult circumstance with our spouse, we go through that difficult circumstance with a parent, with a coworker, with a patient, with a client. How do we find safety in God in that trouble? And this is how our psalmist describes the act of finding refuge in God. Again, poem. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. Just hear his voice and all the trouble goes away. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the psalmist is describing what it's like to go to this place of safety, to find refuge and to be safe in the midst of trouble. He's talking about it as if it's going into a city or a temple or a fortress with big walls around it. And on the surface of things, it, it, you may think, well, is, he talk, is this like a praise to Jerusalem or something? But there's enough metaphorical language throughout this psalm that that's not what he's talking about. The earth isn't literally melting, and there's some other imagery like mountains being thrown into the ocean that are, that's also not literally happening. The psalmist is describing something mysterious about the way you and I enter into God as our refuge. He's describing what it feels like, using this rich imagery, what it feels like to dwell in God, in this interior city, temple, or refuge. He's talking about the way that you and I, we can turn inward and it can transform our experience of trouble. So this imagery of going into a city, the psalmist talking about the way that you and I have this like inner city within us and that there is some way that you and I can turn and go into that city that then keeps us safe in the midst of trouble. So he's kind of trying to highlight this idea of God dwelling within us. 
This is consistent with a lot of other places in Scripture. In Ephesians, Paul talks about this. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. God dwells in you so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. 1 Corinthians 3.6 Don't you know that you, you yourselves, are God's temple? It's not a temple out there that you go to to find refuge. It's a temple in here that you and I go into to dwell with God. God's Spirit dwells in your midst. And then Jesus, He took pain. He's at pains to make this point. He so clearly wanted people to understand that God dwells within us that He went to a festival where they're celebrating that God dwelt in the literal temple in Jerusalem. And He stood up on the steps in the middle of this festival as water is pouring out of the temple to symbolize that God dwells in this physical building and that the water comes out to bless all the people. He stood up right there and said, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Harkening back to the idea of the stream that the psalmist is referencing. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The place of refuge that you and I can go to be kept safe in our times of trouble is within us. And those who have learned how to do this, how to turn inward and dwell with God in this inner city, in this inner temple, in this inner refuge, have experienced it's a real place that you can go and find safety. Listen to how Teresa of Avila, 16th century mystic and nun, describes what it's like to go into this interior, where she called it an interior castle. There's a secret place, a radiant sanctuary, as real as your own kitchen, more real than that, constructed by the purest elements, overflowing with 10,000 beautiful things, worlds within worlds, forests, rivers, Velvet coverlets, thrown over feather beds, founds bubbling beneath a canopy of stars, bountiful forests, universal libraries, a wine cellar offering an intoxication so sweet you will never be sober again. A clarity so complete you will never again forget. This magnificent refuge is inside you. Enter. Shatter the darkness that shrouds the doorway. Believe the incredible truth that the Beloved has chosen for His dwelling place the core of your own being, because that is the single most beautiful place in all of creation. The refuge where we can dwell with God and be safe is within us. You and I can go into this place and find refuge from all the troubles that we face. But the psalmist also wants to point out that if we don't turn inward, if we refuse to take refuge with God by developing this interior world, then destruction awaits. Verse 8, Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations He has brought on the earth. 
You and I reject God and refuse to dwell with Him to our own peril. But if we turn inward, the worst circumstances, all the desolation, all the destruction that's happening out here, that will continue to happen, the terribleness of all of our trouble if we can't turn inward, once we figure out how to turn inward, it transforms all this trouble and conflict out here. Verse 9, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the shields with fire. The way that when people learn how to turn inward, it just transforms conflict in their life, transforms trouble, makes wars to cease. Conflict you have in your families, the conflict you have with your spouse, conflict you have with your children at work. Everything is transformed and healed when we learn how to turn inward and take refuge with God. But how? How do we turn inward? How do we go to this interior castle and be safe as we dwell with God? And he tells us, be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The way that you and I enter into this interior castle, refuge, city, temple, and dwell with God is by sitting in silence. We stop all of our striving, all of our doing, and we simply sit still. And we trust that God is within us. To me, this is the most beautiful expression of the gospel. We do nothing. It's all grace. We just sit there and believe by faith that God is within us, that God loves us, that God cares for us, that we can trust God. And this, if we can stop and sit still, we learn how to go inward, and our lives are transformed. The power of sitting still, the magic of it, it's kind of revealed in the Hebrew word that means be still. It's called rapah. And it literally means, or kind of, well, it literally means to be still, but the implied kind of underneath meaning is letting go. It has this idea of clenched fists opening and kind of loosening our grip and letting go of something that we're clinging on to tightly. This means this process of sitting still is a process of letting go of all of the things that we cling to. We let go and trust. And as we do that, something deep within us starts to get healed so that we feel safe in any experience of trouble. And the letting go that happens, this is the, this command, like, be still my soul, what this means is let go my soul. So what this means is that they're in the depth of our being, if you're into psychology, maybe you can think unconscious, in the depth of our unconscious, 
the depth of our soul. We cling to things for life that don't give us life. And as we sit still, as soon as there's quiet, our mind starts screaming at us, right? You got to do this. What does this person think? Memories come. Do you remember when you said this and that person rolled their eyes? They don't like you. Remember that email you got? You haven't replied for like four hours. That person is going to think you're lazy. These things start coming. Where do these come from? Where do these thoughts come from? They're expressions what our soul is refusing to let go of. Our soul is clinging to. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Thomas Keating. He passed away a little over a year ago. And he says that there are a handful of letting go things that we do when we practice this being still, when we just stop and sit still and spend extended periods of time in silence. He said the first thing that we're going to have to let go of, not necessarily that these are tiered or there's an order of letting go, um, is affection and esteem. So like deep in our soul, our soul clings to affection and esteem. And so when we sit still, there's going to be all these thoughts that come as we're not focusing our energy around this pursuit of affection and esteem. And he says, no, affection and esteem isn't bad. This is a basic need, right? We need love. We need to be in loving relationships, and we need self-worth. We need to think okay. We need to have like some sense of self-esteem as we're in the world. But what ends up happening for all of us is that these are so powerful to define our lives that our soul ends up just clinging to them for life. It gives this example. Imagine you're growing up and you decide that you would like to become a movie star. People known for loving, affection, and esteem. So you go out to California, and after years of starring in nothing but commercials, you finally get your big break. You get into like a feature movie. You've got a significant role. <coughs> it, it releases. The critics review it. And you're at like 99 on Rotten Tomatoes, and people are specifically calling you out by name as like an up-and-coming star. There's like, Rotten Tomatoes is an aggregate of all these reviews, right? So there's like, let's say there's 150 reviews, and everybody's telling you, this is one of the greatest actors that, in this generation that's up-and-coming. You know, you're feeling pretty good. But then you open up Twitter, and you got a direct message, and one person that you've never met before just goes off on you. And you think about, what, do, what are you thinking about? For the rest of the day. The 150 positive reviews and 99 in Rotten Tomatoes, or that direct message where somebody tore you to shreds. And this speaks to the way that we are wired and the way that deep in our soul we cling to affection and esteem as something that gives us life. So that when something like that comes to us, it can be such a terrible experience trouble and pain. So affection and esteem is one thing that we learn to let go of as we sit in silence. Another, power and control. Again, basic need to have some semblance of power of agency, take responsibility for our own lives. But what ends up happening is that part of our soul that clings to power and control, when that happens, we become people who always want power and need to dictate what is going to happen in every situation, and we are not happy unless we get our way. And so when we're trying to control a situation or control people, and then they don't do what we think they're supposed to be doing, we start to have these negative emotions. 
grief, despair, and anger. Power and control are basic needs, you know, take responsibility for your life. But when our drive for power and control defines us, when we're, our soul is clinging to power and control, this is a recipe for misery. We can't control people, can't control circumstances. And so when we sit in silence, if our soul is clinging to power and control, all of those thoughts and desires that are rooted to our soul grabbing hold of power and control, they start to surface. And then we get to practice letting go. Just over and over and over again, letting go, saying, I am happy in the love of God. I don't need to be in power and control to be happy. I'm just happy in the love of God. So every time one of those things come up, we let go. And we let go. We just over and over and over again, we let go. And we start to be transformed into people who are okay with the fact that we're not omnipotent. The third thing Security and survival. Again, a basic, basic need is to survive. So that's not bad. But it's the way that you and I can have that basic need and make it the driving thing of our life to save so much, to orchestrate our lives so much, to be so self-protective that we're just consumed by this. But life is uncertain. There's nothing that we can do to guarantee that we'll never be hurt in the future. So we have to learn how to let go. And as we sit in silence and those thoughts come up, just let go over and over again. And the last thing he talks about is our unhealthy attachments to tribe. Whatever group, whatever family of origin, national identity, all that gets mixed up with these other three drives. And so we start thinking about like, what that person over there thinks of us or, or whether or not we're doing the right thing or living according to the values of this particular group that we find ourselves in. And we let go of those things as well. And we just rest in the divine love and embrace. All of this is happening at an unconscious level. All of our old wounds start to get healed as we sit in silence, enter into this interior castle, this refuge, this temple. In silence, we acknowledge these thoughts, these desires, these feelings, and then we just let go of them and focus on the fact that God is within me. And God's love is the thing that will truly make me happy. These, these programs for happiness of getting security and survival, of having power and control and winning affection and esteem, they're programs for misery. So we learn how to let go of them and just sit and be in the love of God. The refrain of this psalm, he says two times, the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. We learn to just sit with that. And as we practice silence, it transforms our inner being so that when stuff out here happens where somebody doesn't esteem us, somebody doesn't give us the affection we really want them to give, when we lose power or somebody has power over us or we find ourselves out of control, or we feel that our future is not perfectly secure, or we're not going to live forever or survive forever, when we face those times of trouble, because we've sat in silence and entered into this inner world where God's love is at the center of us, it just doesn't disturb us in the same. It doesn't cause the same emotional distress. We've let go. Be still. 
and know God is within you. So what I'm wanting you guys to do is to leave here and commit to this as a practice. I'm including this in our seven steps of spiritual growth because I think that silence is not one of those optional things. It's a required thing. And in order to try and drive that point home, that this is not an optional thing but a required thing, let me read you a few quotes about silence from some of the Christian greats. Henry Nouwen wrote, Without solitude and silence, it is almost impossible to live a spiritual life. Dallas Willard, Silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us upon the stark realities of our life. It reminds us of death, which will cut us off from this world and will leave only leave only us and God. Kathleen Norris wrote, The ordinary daily practice of silence is a prophetic stance in our world of noise. It is one of the greatest gifts we can offer the world. Thomas Merton, Not all persons are called to be hermits, but all persons need enough silence and solitude in their lives to enable the deep inner voice of their own true self to be heard at least occasionally. For one cannot go on happily for long unless one is in contact with the springs of spiritual life which are hidden in the depths of one's own true soul. Each of these authors recognize and call us to the essential practice of silence and solitude. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you really quick guidelines, and then I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and they're going to play a song. And we're going to, it's like sort of silence because there's going to be song, but we're just going to, you're just going to sit and just be where you are. But basically, the, the primary thing that I do when I practice silence is I try and practice this twice a day for 20 to 30 minutes. I frequently don't get that in. Um, a lot of times what I'll do in the morning is I'll use that red prayer book, and there's a place where it talks about silence, and I'll just have silence there. Sometimes I'll start with silence before I go through the prayer book. Sometimes I'll do the silence after the scripture reading, which is where it is in the structure. Um, but the idea is that this is, when we do this practice, we just practice letting go over and over and over again. I mean, it's just, you're just sitting in silence doing nothing. So it's not like ecstasy. There's not a lot that happens, but it changes the rest of your day. It's this practice that transforms the way that we go through our days. So anyways, so 20 to 30 minutes, once or twice a day. If that's too much, start with like two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, whatever you can handle. Just sit in silence a little bit. Choose a centering word. There's, this doesn't do any work. But like think of a word that can, it's just a tool that draws you back to focus and still like father or love or grace. You choose some word and the word doesn't have to do any work and you don't have to think about the word. But when your mind starts to wonder, when your soul is driving these thoughts, these anxious thoughts, you just return to love. And then, oh, I gotta send that email. Love. And you're, you're trying to just sit in no thinking, just resting in the love of God. And every time something comes, you acknowledge it, and just let it go. So this is the simple practice. I usually set a timer so I don't have to like, think about how long has it been. Um, that's the whole practice, but it's like essential, I think. I think this is essential for us as Christians if we want to grow spiritually. We have to sit in silence.